0: We're going to be diving into continuation of our study in 1 Corinthians today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we have arrived today. I need to set this up for you just a little bit. I need to talk to you a little bit about a bicycle adventure that happened to yours truly back when I was probably, I don't know, nine, ten years old perhaps. We lived on a street in Phoenix, Arizona, the end of which had a dead end right into a space that was a field at that time, a farmer's field, and there was an irrigation ditch, maybe four feet across, wasn't huge, but it was often filled with water, so it was real muddy. And we boys who rode bicycles in the neighborhood thought it would be a great idea (laughs) to build a ramp so that if we got fast enough, down that street, right when it dead-ended, we could hit that ramp, go airborne, and fly all the way across that irrigation ditch, landing safely on both wheels in the field on the other side. That's what we were imagining in our minds. Now, I would like to say that this is one of those things where I learned from other people's example, and so it was a hero story, with yours truly as the hero. Didn't work out that way, however. Every kid before me crashed and burned and they went right into that ditch they got muddy their bikes were torn up it was an awful carnage of bicycles but what I was thinking in my mind is what this guy looks like I'm thinking I'm gonna soar above that ditch because that won't happen to me clearly I have skills that those other boys don't possess and I can pedal so much faster than they can pedal I won't get hurt well you can imagine it didn't end well Our little makeshift ramp looked something like this one. We had cobbled together a few things trying to hold up some of the wood on top. It wasn't real sturdy. And when we got ready to do some of those uh, big jumps, all of us, including me, failed to learn from one another's mistakes and we all crashed and burned. I kind of see that as a little bit of a parallel (laughs) with something that was happening in Israel's history. And that's what Paul starts to bring to our attention in this continuation as he's looking at some of the things that he's trying to address in the dysfunctionality in that early church in Corinth. There was division, idolatry, sexual immorality, confusion about theology, especially the gospel itself, as uh, Dr. Pipe mentioned last week in his message, by the way. All these things were being addressed and Paul decides he needs to get a little bit more specific about what kinds of sexual immorality was happening back then, and he does so in a couple of different sections in this letter. We also see that he's going to throw at us some cautionary stories. Now, these are not tales, meaning that they weren't made up. They're not fiction. They're cautionary true stories because they happened right out of Israel's real history, and that's what makes them different from just a cautionary tale. Our context for this chapter, chapter 10, comes to us from the very last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 9, verse 27. Paul was talking about this. Dr. Pipe did a great job. I posted that um, YouTube video link for you on our closed group Facebook page. You can also find us by just typing in Living Water Community Church in your Facebook search and say 1 Corinthians chapter 9, something like that. You, You can find it pretty easily, and it's on our website. I urge you to see that because it's great context for today's message if you haven't seen Dr. Pipe's message already. Paul says in that last verse just before he enters into this new segue into chapter 10, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. He recognized that there was a tendency for those of us who want to tell other people how they ought to be living their lives for us to be tempted by the same things that tempt them and suddenly we fall, which is why he talked about the need for self-discipline, and he made some great sports analogies about becoming disciplined that way. So I'm going to read today's passage to you, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10, where Paul says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. We'll talk about how he could say that in just a few minutes. Verse 5. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of this age. If you think that you are standing strong, Be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This is the word of the Lord. The question might be raised, why all the bad stuff In the Old Testament, how can Paul point back to all these things, some of which were pretty catastrophic, when you're thinking about literally thousands of people dying and being scattered in the wilderness as a result of sin and God's punishment? Don't all these crazy stories in the Old Testament point out a God who could be described as a real mean God? Well, verse 6 tells us why this stuff is in the Old Testament. They serve as a warning to us. And we know that God loves us enough to warn us. We're going to discover this as we start to unpack these verses today. 1 Corinthians 10.1, let's just walk through verse by verse in this passage. God guided Israel and provided for Israel. He guided and provided, and he did so supernaturally. That's something that can't be missed on us. We have to grasp that. This was not an ordinary circumstance, and each time God provided or guided, he did so in a way that clearly let these people know, the children of Israel, that it was God who was doing it. The supernaturally part is important because we need to understand the mindset of these people who had seen miracle after miracle, and yet they chose to worship something other than that God who had guided and provided for them. He'd guided by a cloud by day. If we know that story, if we've read it often enough, or if we'd seen the movies based on that, we know that there was a pillar of fire by night. So there was cloud by day, fire by night. That's supernatural. God put those things in place. That's something you don't see every day. And he provided with a dry path right through the middle of that red sea. Reminds me of that song that we sing sometimes when we're able to sing, and we will again one day, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He's still in the business of doing that. I'm grateful. 1 Corinthians 10.2, the children of Israel were baptized as followers of Moses. What did he mean by that? Well, he's talking about a couple of things there. They were literally going through the Red Sea. And so there was, a, in a sense, they were immersed because there was a wall of water on both sides of them. They went through these events together. And so they were immersed in by following God's chosen leader, the Deliverer, who is Moses. And Moses, as we know, became an archetype or a, a foreshadowing of the real Deliverer, Jesus Christ, who delivered once and for all time. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, all of the children of Israel, Paul says, ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual water. Notice those words spiritual in front of those. They ate the same real food as well, the manna, and the real water, some of which came from a rock the first time that was struck by Moses, the second time he was supposed to have spoken to the rock, but he got mad and struck it twice. But it's water that came from that rock. So they ate the same literal food, but Paul is trying to make a spiritual analogy here. So he says they also ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual water, namely Jesus Christ. How could he say that it was Jesus Christ? And how could he say that it was Jesus who was traveling with them? Because all these analogies were seen in the water that was gushing forth from that rock. It was another foreshadowing to Christ. Paul is connecting the dots for all of these people who had looked back into Israel's history that way. We can see that the baptism by fire or by going through that Red Sea was a foreshadowing of the baptism of Jesus, which took on new meaning recognizing that he became the only way for us to be saved out of our dire situation caused by sin. That was a wonderful foreshadowing because we see that people who are identifying with Christ now don't have to be baptized over and over again, as was the Jewish custom. Christ took care of sin once and for all. So it's one and done for the Christian today. We're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're immersed in the water to signify that death burial and then lifted out of the water to signify resurrection. And it's a beautiful thing. It's like a a wordless sermon. You're preaching the gospel when you're baptized. And then this passing through, there's a wonderful picture there that it comes across a little more poetically in the Hebrew than it does for us in English. But we know that as they were passing through, not only the difficulties that they went through, but especially the Red Sea, it's symbolizing the protection of the good shepherd another foreshadowing all the way to Jesus Christ. The good shepherd protects his sheep literally in the wilderness by lying in the entryway to a sheep pen. So those predators, those wolves out there, you'd have to say, you're going to have to get through me to get to those sheep. And that's in a sense what God was saying through Jesus Christ. You have to go through him to get to those sheep if you're going to harm them. So he would protect them. And he protected the children of Israel all the way across the wilderness. We also see that manna, that wonderful supernatural provision of food that was given to them every day, give us this day our daily bread, foreshadows Jesus who became the bread of life. The rock foreshadows Jesus, the rock of our salvation, from whom flows rivers of living water. There's So many great word pictures, all of which connect to Jesus Christ, and Paul draws these together just in a matter of a few short verses in his letter in 1 Corinthians. Verse 5, the people rebelled, and many of them died on the way to the promised land. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That seems pretty harsh. And again, we might think, well, if he's providing for them so abundantly, and if he's protecting them, how come so many of them died? It's because they rebelled. It's because they took themselves away from God's protection by their behavior by choosing to put their faith and their trust in something other than God. Does that mean that they lost their salvation? It's a good question. We're going to tackle that in just about three or four weeks when we get to the next chapter and Paul starts to address some things related to dysfunctionality in taking the Lord's supper and what it meant to them. And we're going to see, is it possible that God could love somebody enough to keep them saved and yet take them home early? a good question. I'm not going to answer that today because I want you to stay tuned and hear that when we get to that. I think it's going to happen on the next uh, Communion Sunday as well, which is the first Sunday of November. And we'll be able to talk about that more fully to see that there really can be a loving God with a motive of love behind everything he does, even though from our perspective, it may seem very harsh at the time. So these events are warnings to us, Paul says to us to us who live in this age in fact which means that's passed all the way down through history so that their warnings to this church so that we will understand the severity and the consequences of sin paul didn't want us to miss how severe are the consequences of sin to those who turn their backs on god and fail to stay within his loving protective boundaries this could happen to you this is not exactly an irrigation ditch that we're trying to jump, but it was not a pretty sight. And as I saw how easy it is for us to try to follow in other people's footsteps and to see them do something and to think, oh, that won't happen to me. I can do it, and I can do it better than they can. I won't have the same consequences. Yeah, well, it can happen to all of us. And Paul was trying to call that to their attention. And he was no exception. He was saying, even as he said in the last verse of the previous chapter, it's so easy for us to point to other people and say, oh, yeah, but that wouldn't happen to me. And yet we can be tempted in the same way they were tempted, and we too can fall. So he's reminding again and again why it's important for us to stay firm and connected with Jesus Christ and in the gospel. Verse 7, people worshiped substitutes for God. It's just another word for idols. Anything that's a substitute for the real God is an idol, and they paid a great price for it. He's saying, and this is a quote from another Old Testament passage, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. The key word there is pagan, because the kind of revelry they were engaged in was a part of their worship practices, and they were actually incorporating that into their own worship practices, which means that they were thinking that they were doing God a favor by worshiping, they were doing so in such a perverted manner that they completely missed the point of putting their faith in Yahweh, the God who saves and protects and provides. Verse 8, the startling consequences of Israel's rebellion. It's shocking to see the kind of numbers we're talking about here. Paul says we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of those Israelites did, causing 23,000 thousand of them to die in one day. Now, it's a good time for us to put a little parenthetical note in here and to clear up what some people might say is an alleged discrepancy. 23,000, that's Paul's number, as we see here in 1 Corinthians. In the book of Numbers, there's another number associated probably with the same event, but it's 24,000. And some people would see those two numbers and see them as different and think, "Uh uh-oh, somebody made a mistake. And so if you say that the Bible is inspired, and there are no mistakes in the Bible. How come there's a discrepancy here? That's why you have to look at the facts and look in more detail to these two passages. There's some good clues in there for us. 23,000 died, Paul says, in one day, 1 Corinthians ten eight. But the passage in Numbers 25, 9 says 24,000 died in the plague. It doesn't say in one day. It says that they died in the plague. So if we start to put two and two together, and we're starting to understand, okay, there's another uh, passage that says that the plague was stopped, and it was stopped quickly because of some other events that were kind of gruesome. So logically, it stands to reason that it started at some point, and it ramped up, and over an unknown period of time, because it's not given to us in Scripture, perhaps it's like the coronavirus, we don't know. I don't know what that plague was, but there was this plague, and it was... An unknown period of time during which that plague claimed 1,000 lives, and then as it reached its peak on the most costly day of that plague, 23,000 people died, as Paul would have said, and then instantly because of another event that plague was stopped. So we can see that the total was 24,000, the worst day was 23,000, sometime prior to that day there was 1,000. There's no discrepancy there if you just start to parse that and look at it a little bit more carefully. Verses 9 and 10. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. Now, I grew up in Arizona, and I uh, was a Boy Scout for a very short period of time. I really didn't like the outdoors in the desert when it was hot, so I, I didn't last very long as a Boy Scout. But a couple of the campouts that we did we had to have our snake bite kits with us. That's an, it's an important thing to have with you if you're going to be camping out in the desert because there are rattlesnakes out there. And those rattlers are very dangerous. They're very venomous. And we know that in the desert that the children of Israel crossed, there would have been some vipers, some of them very deadly. And we know because of this passage that there were many who were actually killed from snake bites. And the writers, the inspired writers of this passage and others seemed to indicate that they recognized that these snake bites happened to those people because they had rebelled. It was because of their sin, and this was a consequence of that sin. It was because of grumbling, as we had seen in one of those passages that I preached about months ago, when uh, they started to run out of water again. They started to grumble again, even though God had been showing his provision for them, and then God said, okay, Moses, here's what you do. Gather the people, Take them out in front of this great rock, strike the rock, and I will pour forth water for everybody. But the people were grumbling, and the grumbling got worse as time went on. He said, don't grumble, as some of them did. And then they were destroyed by the angel of death. Interesting to say. Now, why would they say that God was the instrument of their death? There was an angel of death, which means that it was an emissary, a communicator, somebody who carried out the wishes of God Almighty. And they would consider that, the Jews clearly considered that an angel of death sent by God. So they said, well, this is God's doing. All those people who had died because of their grumbling, that was some sort of a punishment by God. And again, that may seem harsh to us in our modern Western culture mindset. I think we try to soft sell this quite a bit by saying, well, maybe it was his permissive will. I've heard a couple of different pastors weigh in on that. And some people would say it was his permissive will that allows their free will to kick in. And if they exercise their free will in rebellion, they bring about their own consequence. It's not that God wishes that they would die, but it's their free will that caused it. And there are others, uh, I think one, in, in fact, John Piper would say, no, it's pretty clear from the reading that they really attributed this to God that God's punishment was that harsh, and that God who gives and God takes away, I think we in America would really like to try to excuse some of that power rather than just look at this at face value and say, he's God. Are we supposed to argue with God? And I think maybe that was Paul's point. We shouldn't argue with him. We shouldn't grumble because he has the power to give. He has the power to take away always motivated by love, which is hard for us to see at the time. We're going to see a couple of other passages later that show that to be true. But clearly the writers, including Paul, said, don't grumble as some of them did and then were destroyed by the death angel. They felt that that was God's doing. We can see that cross-referenced with Numbers 21. So how does punishment like this equate with a loving God? We're going to tackle this a little bit more, as I mentioned, in chapter 11. So on the very first week of November, we're going to dive into this even more deeply than we have time to do today. But in short, we need to cross-reference this with Hebrews 12, 4 through 10. It's a great passage on God's love and His motive. God disciplines those He loves as His children. As His children. You know what it's like if you're watching somebody else's kids. I was watching my nephews one time when they were quite young. Joy and I lived uh, in another state at the time. And Paul and John were rambunctious little tykes, and they kind of got into a quarrel. And I had to discipline them, but I didn't discipline them as harshly as I might if they were my own children, because I knew what I could get away with if it was my own child. And my own children would know this is my father's disciplinary style. But with my nephews, I gave them some time out. set them aside, uh, got them separated from one another, and I put Polly over onto the porch and said, you need to sit there for a minute because that's not right. You and John should not be fighting that way. And he came to me later and said, you're not my uncle anymore. (laughs) I was disowned by my nephew. Fortunately, he was young enough that he didn't remember that later when I tried to remind him of it. But God disciplines those he loves. The reason I disciplined them is because I cared about them. I didn't want them to hurt each other. I didn't want them to suffer the consequences of their rebellion. And that's what God does for us, too. It might be different if we didn't think that those people in Israel in the wilderness had ever been warned, but they had been warned again and again and again, and when they've been warned often enough that we keep seeing them going right back to that old behavior again, and we see the grumbling coming back up again and again after they had been supernaturally provided for and protected, that's when you have to start saying, okay, maybe I can see that this was not something that was whimsical, spur of the moment, just an angry God who had a flash of anger and temper. No, this is a very patient God. And if we were in Moses shoes, I could see why he'd get ticked off too, quite frankly. If I had been in Moses sandals, I wouldn't be surprised if I would have struck that rock twice like he did. It's easy to point the finger at other people, but all of us can start to think, ooh, yeah, we're pretty human, aren't we? And even looking back in my own life, I can see how God has supernaturally provided for me and protected me numerous times. Do I still grumble from time to time? Uh, I'm afraid so. I'd like to think that i could learn from my own mistakes and from looking at other people's mistakes and that i wouldn't be tempted to fall that way but i am and that's paul's point to us in this passage he says take heed lest you fall he didn't want to become disqualified by doing the very thing that he's preaching against and it can so easily happen to all of us because all of us are vulnerable that way the snake story also revealed a couple of really neat foreshadowings and i love the way paul juxtaposes all these together right here in this passage. He's so good at that. It points ahead to something that happened as they lifted up that bronze serpent on a pole. Remember what happened to that? The people who looked up and saw that serpent lifted up before them were healed from their snake bites. What does that sound like? High and lifted up, those who looked upon him would be healed. That's Jesus Christ. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on that cross. What did the people see when they looked up at that pole? They saw a reminder of their sin. And they saw the consequence of their sin. That's what we see when we look at Christ hanging on that tree. We see not only the consequence of our sin, but we get to see that it affected somebody in such a powerful way and that he took that punishment on our behalf. That's what we celebrated in communion. It's an amazing thing that that story got translated into what is now the medical symbol for healing because we can see that serpent on a pole and it's rather readily recognized these days. Well, what did they see when they looked at that pole? The consequence for their sin and the cure for their sin because those who look upon Jesus who was lifted up on our behalf are cured from the deadly and eternal ailment of sin itself because that's what keeps us separated from God. So here's a typical question, and it comes up a lot when people start looking at these negative examples from Israel's history. Man, that seems harsh. Couldn't there have been another way? And there's kind of another question embedded in that question, and that is, couldn't there have been a way that God would have intervened and maybe kept them from rebelling that way? Couldn't he have somehow inserted himself somehow stepped in to the mix amongst them and kept them from sinning so badly so they wouldn't have had to be punished so harshly that's a big question couldn't there have been any other way that was the same kind of question that Simon Peter had asked when he had uh, mentioned to Jesus Christ there's got to be another way and Jesus said get thee behind me satan jesus took that seriously It points ahead, really, to that same question that talks about, isn't there any other way for us to be freed of our sins so that we can get into heaven, so we can be reconnected, reunited, reconciled with God? And there is no other way. Jesus Christ is the way. Clyde Wellington said, when we were young, our parents disciplined us, and at times, terrifying us. After we had experienced enough life to understand why, we thanked them for it. (laughs) I know I did, I actually had a a dinner together with my parents. My sister and I and my mom and dad had a meal together years after we had lived enough life to be able to appreciate those punishments, the discipline that they gave us as we were younger. And I actually said, Dad, is there something that you regret in the way of punishment? And he said, actually, there is. There's one time when I regretted doing something, and he told me about it. And I said, well, if it's any consolation... (laughs) You're bringing that up right now? I have no memory of it. It's completely gone right out of my mind. He says, oh, well, that makes me feel better then. But he felt badly fearing that he had been too harsh in his discipline at times. But my sister and I were able to actually pass along our thanks to our parents and say, "Man, we're glad you gave us self-discipline. We needed it. You have protected us in so many ways because you taught us to discipline ourselves. And as Dr. Pike mentioned last week, We discipline our bodies just like an athlete because we don't want to fall. And it takes that self-discipline to keep us from those consequences. Simon Peter has suggested that there might be another way. Jesus says, no, there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all of these examples in Old Testament point ahead to the fact that Jesus is the only way to our ultimate eternal healing because of what he did for us on the cross. God went to great lengths to fulfill the only way to deal with the eternal consequences of sin against an eternal God. And some see that as crazy. People who hear this kind of story and to even read through the passage that we're reading through right now, they might look at that and think, you Christians really believe that? That just sounds nuts to us. C.S. Lewis said, but when the whole world is running toward a cliff, He who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. And I guess I, as a believer in this, in a believer in the events that really happened in the Old Testament, or they wouldn't have been written about so concretely as they were written about in the New Testament, including by people like the apostles, Paul and Peter, and by Christ himself, who believed in these things as real events. I believe these things. Does that make me crazy? Okay. I'll be crazy for Christ. I'll be a fool for Christ if that's what it takes. But I believe that they're really true. I believe it with all my heart. Otherwise Paul would not have expended so much energy giving his life to preach this gospel and to point back to these cautionary tales so that others might hopefully learn from other people's examples so they wouldn't have to learn it the hard way. These things happen to them as examples for us. Negative examples, yes, but examples nonetheless. I knew a guy named Chris who hated seat belts and he used to never wear them. And he used to ride around in his truck with a guy named Rod and Rod just got used to the fact that even though Rod, for the first few times he rode with him, he'd say, aren't you going to buckle up? He said, nah, that's just the government's way of stealing my freedom and I'm not going to wear them. And so for years, like a couple of years, Rod would ride with Chris in Chris's truck. Chris would never put on that seat belt. All of a sudden, One Saturday, they were gonna go off somewhere. Chris drove up to Rod's house. Rod goes out, hops into the truck, and he notices that Chris had buckled up. And Rod was shocked. And Rod said, why the change of heart? And Chris rather sheepishly said, well, um, a friend of mine was in a really bad car accident last week, and I went to visit him in the hospital. He's got over 100 stitches in his face alone plus other injuries. He said, I'm finding it not so difficult to buckle up all of a sudden. Chris discovered that all of a sudden, this cautionary tale that we hear so much about, it started to hit close to home. And he decided maybe he would learn secondhand wisdom so he wouldn't have to learn it in firsthand. I did it the hard way kind of wisdom. That's why Paul said, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. It's so easy for us to get complacent and to think, I'm doing okay. I haven't been caught at anything negative. I'm all right. I discipline my body like an athlete, he said in that passage just leading up to 10, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might be disqualified. He didn't want that to happen. And he didn't want all the rest of these leaders that he was trying to teach and lead Back in Corinth and in the other cities where he had planted churches, he didn't want them to fall that way. He wanted them to learn from other people's mistakes so they didn't have to learn it the hard way. Be careful that as you're standing, you yourself don't fall. So how do we justify a God who punishes so harshly? Well, we can look at the whole counsel of Scripture and we find that justification from beginning to end. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, says the writer of Hebrews, and don't give up when he corrects you. Why could he say such a thing? Why could this writer named Dane Ortland say in his book Gentle and Lowly, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Now, how could Dane Ortland write these words after looking at the passage that we've just been looking at in 1 Corinthians 10? I'll tell you why. It's because the second part of that Hebrews passage, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. And we also know because we can look at the cross that starts to unpack all the meaning of the entire rest of the Bible, including the Old Testament, all of which foreshadowed what happened on that cross. We can see that Christ's love was the motive for all of that. Joy and I became friends with Jim and Sharon Sheridan. Jim was a district court judge. You've heard me mention him several times. He's a very colorful character an interesting guy biblically knowledgeable kind of guy that taught a Bible study class at his church before he went to heaven. But he had a guy come to his office at the courthouse one afternoon, and his administrative assistant came and interrupted him and said, Jim, uh, there's a guy out here that would like to see you, and I think you're going to really appreciate what he has to say. I think you're going to want to see this guy. And Jim said, okay, send him back. So the guy wandered around in the catacombs of the hallways behind the courtrooms that led to his office. And the man walked in, and he held out a coin that looked very much like the coin you see there. And he said, uh, Judge, I want to give you this as a gift. This is yours. It's dedicated to you. And Jim said, what? why? What's going on? He recognized it as a coin that is given to people in AA for the number of days, weeks, or years of sobriety. And it was a 10 year coin, which means that he had been clean and sober for 10 solid years, taking one day at a time for 10 years. And he said, well, you sentenced me. I don't know if you remember it, because 10 years ago, you have a lot of people that go before your bench. And he said, my life was a wreck back then. And I was on a road to destruction but I didn't recognize it at the time. I thought my life was normal. Everything was going okay for me, I thought. But you said some things at my sentencing that showed me that you cared because you said something like, I know that you have potential to put to use all that intellect that you have because clearly you're an intellectual guy. You're really smart. But I'm, I'm really afraid that if I don't sentence you harshly enough for you to get it, for you to really hit bottom, and to think about the severity of the consequence of your actions, I fear that you won't even be alive 10 years from now. And I would hate that. And he said, it's 10 years, and I'm still alive. And I'm alive thanks to you because you cared enough about me to give me really harsh punishment. He said, it was about six months into that punishment when I was doling out court fees and paying back all the things that I had to pay off, because there were a lot of fees associated with the mess I had made for myself, until I realized I was being angry at all the wrong people. And I finally got angry at myself. And then I started thinking, if I hadn't had to pay these fees and due time in jail and worked so hard for two years until I could even get my driver's license back again, I realized that I probably would be dead today knowing that I was living the kind of life that I was living. So I just have you to thank for that. So thank you. I want you to put that on your desk to remind you, because I'm sure you probably see an awful lot of people who are really angry at you most of the time. I want you to know that there's at least one of us out here who was changed because you cared enough to give some harsh punishment that stuck with me because I do see a lot of harsh punishment in the Old Testament. And I cringe at some of that. But when I think about what it means, because God cares enough to want to protect and preserve his people so that he could fulfill his promise made to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all nations through Abraham's descendants. God was fulfilling all of his promises that were motivated by love even though there was extreme, harsh punishment involved. So yeah, they're hard words, but true. I think I read something too about three weeks ago that uh, it said, hard words from the pulpit softens hearts, but soft words from the pulpit hardens hearts. I think that's true. I think if we try to dumb down the gospel or water down the gospel, and try to make it into easy believism, we miss what it cost God as he gave himself for our benefit. That's pretty harsh. And it was definitely unfair to him, but he bore the weight of our sin because that's how much he cared about us. And he combined love and justice together on our behalf. Hard words, but true. And here's the deal. The longer you go without getting caught, and this king out of not only that fellow's story, the one who gave Jim Sheridan his coin, but about several other people that I've met and have heard their stories along the way too. The longer you go without getting caught, the worse off you'll be when you finally are. There's another guy named Marvin, and I watched his story unfold, and I told him basically this. Marvin, it's going to get worse and worse. You need to try to check this stuff now. If you don't take care of it now and start owning up to the fact that you caused this mess that you're in, it's going to be much worse, and the consequences are going to be much greater. He lost his family. He lost his job. He lost his credibility. It hurt Marvin a lot to keep going, thinking, I've gotten away with it. I've gotten away with this for a time, and it's no big deal. I can keep doing this. There were a lot of things about his addictions that really cost Marvin Schoon. Fortunately, he's now reinstated with his family. They got back together again because he got clean and sober. There were some things that happened that really forced him into a position of hitting rock bottom. And then he really turned his heart over to the Lord. And as far as I last knew, the last thing I heard from Marvin, he was walking in step with the Lord Jesus Christ And he had his family back. He had a new job. They'd moved to a different state so he could get support from his family. And things had gone much better for Marvin. Matthew Henry, that commentator, who sounds a little King James-ish in his syntax, said this, Carnal desires gain strength by indulgence. Therefore, should be checked in their first rise. Let us fear the sins of Israel, if we should shun their plagues. That's poetically stated, but he's saying, we need to learn from Israel if we're going to avoid the kinds of consequences they had to go through. Learn secondhand wisdom so that we don't have to learn the hard way with firsthand wisdom. There's something that's easy for all of us to do. Run that little stop sign at the end of your street in a quiet neighborhood because everybody always does it. There's never any traffic there. I've gotten away with rolling through that the last three times. Why should I pay attention to that? Maybe fudging just a little bit on my taxes this year shouldn't be that big a deal. Maybe going five miles per hour over the speed limit is not too bad, and then that creeps up to seven, and then that creeps up to 10, and then before you know it, you're going 85 miles an hour down the freeway, woo, you see the lights behind your car. It's so easy, whatever it is that we do, the little white lies that we tell, the little things that belong to your employer that you take home and treat them as your own, whatever it might be, there's so many things that for us as human beings, the longer we go without getting caught, the worse off we'll be, which means that we need to somehow allow the Holy Spirit to check our spirit early in the process before it gets so lengthy And so deep that when we finally endure the consequences, those consequences don't completely overwhelm us. I think that's what Paul was trying to get through to us. It's easy to think, it wasn't too bad. I got away with it. And I know I've got forgiveness. So that's the temptation, which is why Paul wrote what he did. Be careful if you're standing, because you can be tempted and you can fall as well. Verse 13. This one's so widely misquoted. (laughs) You've heard people say, oh, it's scriptural. The Bible says God will never give you more than you can handle. Eh, Wrong answer. It's not what this verse says. It's not what the Bible says. There are going to be plenty of times when we're going to be right in the midst of things that we cannot handle. Here's what verse 13 actually says. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Let me just say that some of us, we do fall, but we fall quickly and we get up quickly. That's a blessing. That's wonderful. Other people go a lot farther and and much deeper into their temptation. And when they hit rock bottom, they have a lot more serious consequences, and it's more difficult for them. But this passage applies to everybody, no matter how deep or shallow you are in that temptation. When you are tempted, because we all are, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. I don't care who you are, God will show you a way out. Maybe you've hit rock bottom. Maybe life has gotten difficult for you. Maybe you haven't even quite yet been in the midst of your consequence long enough to say what that one fellow said. I'm starting to get angry at myself because I've been angry at everybody else, and I recognize I'm the one who made that choice. I put myself here. There's forgiveness for you. When you display that humility, that repentance, God is so quick to run in there, just like the father who ran out to greet his prodigal son. He's so quick to meet you on the path as you take one step back toward him. And if it's shallow and you hadn't gotten in that deep yet, praise God. Hopefully you can arrest whatever it is that might be tempting you right now and be able to, as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the (laughs) bud. You need to nip it while it's still just a bud before it flowers and blossoms and becomes something huge so that it doesn't grow into a huge branch so that there's not a difficult pruning process that has to go along in your life because there is pruning that will happen in our lives as well. It happens to all of us. Sometimes if you can snip it with a little pair of scissors, it's not that painful, even though it is painful, but sometimes it takes a chainsaw and the pruning is difficult, but it's so that we can bear fruit that's sweet The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Every single one of us experience temptations, every one of us. And God is faithful. I'm so glad he's faithful. Is there any other way? That's the big question that keeps coming up as we look at harsh punishment through scripture. If there were any other way, God would have made it so. As it is, Jesus Christ became the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you are tempted, and we all will be, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. There's forgiveness for everybody, everybody. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. Forgiveness is our way forward. And because of what Jesus did for us, because it was the only way possible for sinful people to be reconciled with the Holy God, there is forgiveness available to every single person who calls upon the name of that Lord, Jesus Christ, the way, the one who is lifted up so that as we look to him, we have healing forever. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there's somebody listening right now and they're struggling with a temptation or they're feeling the weight of a consequence of a temptation, I pray that right now they'll turn to you. They'll look up to you, the one who was lifted up and that they'll find healing and hope. That you'll take away the shame, that feeling of guilt that weighs them down and that you'll lift that right off their shoulders so that they'll be able to know that they can walk freely in you as your child because of how you view them. Because once You have placed your cloak of righteousness over them. They're not wearing those rags that are filthy of unrighteousness, that sin, because you've taken that completely away. And you place your cloak of righteousness so that they can be clothed in Christ. And I pray that they will do that. So they can walk freely as a new creature, a new creation, reborn in Jesus Christ, filled with your spirit, and walking down the path to become transformed so that they will look more and more like you every day of their lives. Thank you for your forgiveness. All of us who have sinned and have fallen short, thank you for your forgiveness because we would all be sunk without your grace. And it's that grace that we're so grateful for today. We thank you in Jesus' name.